Magovanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And in this video, well, let's just say I'm going to give Peter Jackson a little credit where it's due. And this is a topic that, you know, if you've been following my channel for long enough, you know I have some serious criticisms of many of the choices that Peter Jackson made creatively. I hate what he did to Faramir. I'm not really a huge fan of what he did to Aragorn. Uh, and you could go on and on and on about my criticisms of the Peter Jackson films. And let's not even get started on The Hobbit. But he did one thing that I think makes a lot of sense from an adaptation point of view. And that was cutting Tom Bombadil. Now, am I happy that Tom Bombadil is out of the movie? Not exactly. But I recognize that in the scheme of things, Tom Bombadil is a relatively unimportant character for the overall plot. And he's he takes up a lot of space. I mean, if we count the chapters that he's in, he's in the Old Forest chapter, he's in the in the House of Tom Bombadil chapter, and he's in the chapter on the Bar Fog on the Barrow Downs. He's in three whole chapters, and that takes up a large chunk of time. And it's it's something that even people who are familiar with the books and very familiar with the books, unless you're reading them over and over again, it's easy to kind of forget about this episode of the story because you know, in the movie, we just get them skipping straight from the Brandywine, uh, I mean, the Buckleberry Ferry to Bree. I mean, it just, bam, they just skip it. And even in the Ralph Bakshi film, this happens, right? But in the book, when they leave Crick Hollow, they end up spending a whole day trying to find their way through the old forest, which leads to adventures in and of itself. They get rescued by Tom Bombadil, stay in his house the whole next chapter, and then the day after that, or the chapter after that, they go get caught by the Barrow, uh, Barrow Whites in the Barrow Downs and have to have Tom Bombadil rescue them. And so there's this huge amount of material that gets left out. And that alone is justification for cutting out Tom Bombadil because at the end of the day, you know, Peter Jackson's movies are already three and a half hours long by the time you look at the extended editions but even three hours plus in, in the theatrical cut, and that's long for a movie. I mean, that's a long time to be sitting in a theater with no intermission. So if you include Tom Bombadil, that's going to take up a lot of extra time that you have to then accommodate, and it just gets to an unwieldy amount of time. And again, Bombadil doesn't really add that much to the plot. He adds an enormous amount to the world of Middle-earth. I mean, he, he does a lot to add to the sense of wonder and just sheer, you know, mystery of, you know, there's all these things out there that we don't really understand or can't explain or, you know, just weird stuff in the world that makes it such a great fairy story. But at the end of the day, it's just not, it doesn't make as much sense for a movie because the movie has limited resources in terms of time. You just got to accommodate for it. You're going to have to cut some stuff out of Lord of the Rings if you want to make even a large trilogy. I think if you wanted to make a mini-series out of the Lord of the Rings or a, you know, a six-movie series out of Lord of the Rings, one for each book, like if you read the book, you know that they're divided, each volume is divided into books. There's six books, actually. Fellowship of the Ring is books one and two, Two Towers is three and four, Return of the King is five and six. So, you know, you could do it that way and probably get away with adding Tom Bombadil in and it would make sense. The other reason that I'm pretty much okay with the fact that he decided not to include Tom Bombadil is it would be really hard 
to portray Tom Bombadil. You would have to find just the right actor and really play it just right. And it would be difficult to do because Tom Bombadil is a very strange character. And it'd be hard to pull off really showing Tom Bombadil without just seeming silly. You would have to have somebody who is capable of acting in ways that seem absurd, but doing it seriously in a way that we can take take seriously as the audience. And that would be difficult to do, even for the best of actors. You would have to find somebody extremely talented, but also shoot it in a way that just it doesn't make the audience go, what a bumbling oaf this guy is. I mean, it's just... You have to take it so seriously that you can't really allow for much of the the kinds of comedy that you have to put into a movie to keep things lighthearted. And, and an example of this, Gimli often gets criticized, and I agree with this criticism, as being kind of like turning into just comic relief over the course of the three movies. He doesn't start out that bad, but over time... More and more, Gimli ends up being just comic relief and not really a serious character. And that is that is a legitimate criticism, and I don't particularly like it. But there is also some sense in which, in the movie context, you need a little bit of that to break up some of the tension every now and then. Whereas in the book, you don't have to do that as much, and even to the extent that you do, it doesn't have to be as often, and it doesn't have to be as overt. So if you end up in a situation where for a long period of time you're not doing that kind of humor in the movie, like we see in the movies, I mean, you get, you know, the the incident where they meet Mary and Pippin in Farmer Maggot's Crop, and, and that's that's a, it's a humorous situation the way that goes down, Right. And there's other humorous things that happen that are very different from the book, but those kinds of humor are better suited for the movie adaptation. You wouldn't be able to do that in Tom Bombadil's context without making the whole thing seem just silly. And Tom Bombadil is anything but silly. He may seem silly, but he's not. So you can't do that, but then you can't have this huge stretch in a movie where you have none of that humor, but something else that seems a lot like humor. It'd just be so hard to pull off. So, those are the really simple reasons, but there's one big, deeper reason that occurred to me recently, and this occurred to me because somebody on social media was talking about how, you know, Peter Jackson shouldn't have cut Tom Bombadil, and I made the argument, you know, I think he was actually right to do that. And a lot of it has to do, and I've already been kind of hinting at this, with the difference between the storytelling nature of a movie and the book. The book has a lot more time to develop things than the movie will have because the movie can't be really above a certain length without just getting overly, you know, just you can't sit through a movie that long, especially without an intermission in a movie theater. You're going to either miss something or you're going to have to, you know, not eat or drink anything for a while, let's say. So I want to explore kind of the difference between movie and book in terms of how they do the story in their own different, you know, genre, not genre, um, medium, and why this affects why you would want to or not want to include Tom Bombadil.
So one of the things that I've talked about before in my series of videos on the chapters, including Tom Bombadil, and I'll link to those and the follow-up video that I did kind of explaining the significance of that whole series, is the point of Tom Bombadil kind of in the story is a transition from the very humdrum day-to-day -day of the Shire, which is not very mythical or fairy tale like other than the fact that we have hobbits who are not I mean, they're human, according to Tolkien, but they're not strictly like normal human like we think of as human. But it's a transition from that to the bigger, wider world of myth and legend that we get in The Lord of the Rings. Because after that, we get to meet Aragorn, who's a king of, you know, a long-destroyed kingdom and hearkening back to the fall of Numenor. And, I mean, you just get... You get all this myth thrown at you as soon as we get beyond Bree, or even to Bree. I mean, it becomes just huge. We already got hints of that from Gandalf in, you know, Bag End when he's telling Frodo about the history of the Ring and all of that stuff. But the hobbits themselves have not experienced any of it. And so what they start to experience in the Old Forest is the transition to fairy, the transition to myth and legend, you know, this you know, this wider, more mysterious, more dangerous world. Peter Jackson's movies take a much different approach, and there's a reason for it. In the movie context, he has to speed up his plot and get it to where it needs to go. He can't spend, you know, the first hour and a half of The Fellowship of the Ring just getting them to Bree and showing, hey, look, we're starting to get into some weird stuff out here. It's not just as nice and peaceful as the Shire everywhere. But if you included Tom Bombadil, that's what you'd get. I mean, you'd by the time you got through with all of his episode, you'd be an hour and a half in, and you wouldn't have gotten to anything significant other than a couple hints of the Nazgul, which we really don't know what they are at that point in the story. And that's why in the movie, Peter Jackson shows us cutscenes of the Nazgul leaving Minas Morgul, and Frodo, I mean, not Frodo, Gollum being... Um, tortured and getting giving information to Sauron or whoever's, you know, doing the torturing. And so we've got all of these really quick, brief references in Peter Jackson's movie to already give us this sense of the bigger, wider world and the danger that Frodo is in. And because of that, you know, early stuff, we already have a better sense of the world we're in and we don't need that transition. Because that transition would take too long. It, it really just would in a movie context. There's no way to make it work. There's more to this sense of transition in the sense of the wider world and the danger, though, because, as I mentioned before in the books, we only really see a couple glimpses of the Nazgul before we get anywhere, really, and then we don't even know what they are at that. I mean, we know that they're probably dangerous, and Frodo is, you know, worried about them, but he doesn't really know who they are, even though Gandalf has kind of already told him about the Nazgul. He doesn't know that's who these people are. So he's worried about them, and then he runs into Gildor and his wandering group of elves in the forests of the Shire, and Gildor straight up tells him, this is not your Shire. It's not as neat and tidy as you think it is. The wider world is out there, and you can't keep it out forever. And so we get, we start to get these references to all of this 
And this danger sense is building, and Gildor helps to build it quite a lot because he basically says, I'm not sure I want to tell you what these things are because that might make you not want to go further. And that's, and then, you know, Frodo kind of legitimately tells him, I don't know how you could scare me worse than you just did, pal. Um, so there's this sense of the danger that's out there and how it's going to affect Frodo ultimately, but we still haven't really come to grips with it or seen it yet. Whereas in Peter Jackson's movies, of course, Nazgul are straight up chasing the hobbits across territory and it gets very, very dangerous and they're coming straight up against it. And this is highlighted by the fact that in the book, Gandalf in April had basically told Frodo, you're going to need to leave eventually, but don't do it in too much of a hurry. And Frodo says, well, what if I leave in September around Bilbo's birthday? Okay, fine. Gandalf thinks it's perfectly safe to wait five months and, you know, everything's going to be hunky-dory. Whereas in the movie, we can't afford to have that kind of a lax, you know, narrative structure where we're taking our time and everything's fine we just gotta we gotta leave but we don't have to be in any hurry about it in the movie we have to get the plot moving we have to get things going and that's a really key aspect of it so what happens is when the hobbits have had their first brushes with danger in the shire and they decide to go through the old forest to avoid any more encounters with the nazgul they then encounter more danger in the old forest and it's arguably even more dangerous than nazgul um, because, you, you know, the, the old forest, it's not about hiding anymore because the old forest just makes you go where it wants you to. And Old Man Willow practically ends the quest. And it's only Tom Bombadil's intervention that saves them. And in this way, Tom Bombadil is also the first homely house that they visit. They do this a lot, of course. They're rescued from danger and they end up in a place of safety and comfort. Tom Bombadil's house, Elrond's house... You know, the Forest of Lothlorien, all these different places they get to stop, rest, recover, and then set out again. Tom Bombadil is the first example of this in the story. And it's, you know, his is the least impressive of the houses in some ways, but he also rescued them from, in some ways, the least amount of danger. Nevertheless, it serves that that function, and it also serves, as I mentioned before, the function of transitioning them to a wider world. We learn so much from Tom Bombadil. We even get hints of Aragorn because he tells them about, you know, lines of kings, and they have this image that kind of comes up in their minds, and they see this long line of kings proceeding, and the last one comes with a star shining in his brow, and that's Aragorn. I mean, that that's who that is. They don't know that yet, and even the reader doesn't really probably pick up on that very quickly until maybe the second or third read-through. But nevertheless, that's what we're getting. We're getting this sense of huge history from Tom Bombadil, given in very short narrative form, and some hints of what's to come down the road. And we're getting all this from stories being told in you know, his whatever living room or kitchen, wherever it is they're they're sitting whenever he's telling these stories. By the time we get anywhere near Bree in the movies, of course, we've already had snatches of Minas Tirith, where Gandalf goes to look for scrolls. We've seen Orthanc. We've seen, well, by the time they get to Bree, I don't remember for sure if they've seen, if we've seen Orthanc. I can't remember. I'd have to go back and actually watch the movie to see where our first one is. I think so, because I think we see Gandalf ride there pretty early before the Frodo and Sam get very far. Um, 
but we get these visions of bigger things in the outside world. We've already seen Mordor for sure. Uh, as I mentioned, Minas Tirith, I'm pretty sure Kirithungal, not Kirithungal, uh, Orthanc and Isengard. So we've gotten all this vision of huge things in the outside world that the hobbits won't see for a long time. And so it's a very different storytelling mechanism. The movie is trying to get us acclimated. You know, it's tra transitioning us from this idyllic pasture farmland of the Shire to, hey, there's this bigger world that we're about to enter and you need to get ready for it. And in the book, you can take your time with that and really build it up and you get it built up with some of Gandalf's stories to Frodo and then we get Tom Bombadil's stories to the Hobbits. And we, we're building up those expectations over time, but it's so much slower in the book. And it works in the book because in the book we're starting out with you know, these hobbits who really have no clue what they're getting into. And it's through their eyes that we, the reader, are being, you know, put in these situations of danger with the Nazgul and, you know, the old man Willow and all this, and even the Barrow Whites, you know, and all this stuff that happens to them. We, the reader, are kind of being ratcheted up in terms of danger level so that we're ready for the next step. Whereas in the movie, we're just were thrown into it and you kind of have to be and that's you know the way it works because you just have to have a much faster build up to the plot so that ultimately i think is why peter jackson was right to cut out tom bombadil not merely that it was okay to cut tom bombadil i think it was really the right decision given what he had to work with yes he got to do three long movies but like I said, absent doing more than three long movies, I really just don't think Tom Bombadil works. I think you would have to do either a miniseries or five, six movies to really get all the material in and make Tom Bombadil fit in the way that he's supposed to fit. He's a transition. He's a he's a the first homely house that we really don't want to have in a movie context where we're already going to have several of those you know in the fellowship of the ring we already get council of elrond and you know lothlorien that's already two stops along the way in the first movie do we need a third fellowship of the ring is the longest book and this is why so much of that book got cut because there's just so much in it and this was the most natural thing to cut i mean it just it just makes the most sense so do I like the fact that Tom Bombadil is missing? Not especially, but I think given what we had to work with, that was probably literally the first thing I would have cut too. So, you know, much as I have my beefs with Peter Jackson on this one, I think he actually made the right call. So, if you agree with me or disagree with me, leave comments in the in the comment section below. This is a really interesting topic, just because Tom Bombadil is always an interesting topic. Uh, but, you know, give me your arguments either way. It could be really fun. Also, if you enjoy the video, give it a like and share it around. You can also find me on Odyssey and Rumble and catch podcast versions as well. Please also subscribe wherever you prefer to get me. Click the bell icon on YouTube. Make sure you get all the notifications. You can follow me at Twitter at JRRTLore for occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. And you can support me over at Patreon. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.